What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or Enjoy. Sound check. Sound check, check one, check two. Sound check, 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 check. One and two. All right. Brian, why do you have a deck of cards? Well, did I never tell you that I was a magician when I was a kid? No. That oh, doesn't yeah. surprise me, but no, you never told me that. Oh, cool. Well, actually, do you want me to do a trick for you real quick? Uh, do we have time? I, oh, not, all fine. right. Okay. All right. Fine. All right. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. Classic, I want you to pick a card kind of trick, okay? All right. So here, I have my deck of cards in my hand. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to shuffle them in front of you. I'm just going to flick them, my fingers through them. And as they... That's not really shuffling, though. That's just flicking them. Okay, fine. Look, I'm going to run my fingers through the cards. And I want you to pick one of those cards and put it in your mind. Because that's the card I want you to pick. Okay? You mean I'm picking it out of the deck? No. You, you don't actually take your hand and pick it out of the deck. It's purely visual. All right, just do it. Okay. Yeah. That's way too fast. I can't pick it out. You did it too fast. Fine, fine, fine. I'll, I'll do it again. All right. You got the card? Hold on, I forgot. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. Can you just, like, can you just fan them in front of you? That's not how this works. All right, okay, all right. All right, all right. Queen. Don't say it out loud. <sighs> that ruins right. the illusion. All right, all right. Do, do it again. Do it again. Thank you. Uh, okay, all right, I got it. You got it? Yep. Mm-hmm. You got it. Okay, great. All right, your card was the f- five of diamonds. No. What? No. Really, I remember it this are time. You, that wasn't it. Are you, are you sure? Yes. All right. Um, that must have been the ten of hearts. No. No? You're not even close. That must have been the jack of spades then. No, Brian. You know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I haven't done this in a long time. It's all right. You have to forgive me. But you know what? Check your front pocket. Wow. I know, right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's not the right card, but there's a card in my pocket. That's good. Son of a bitch! (laughs) Yeah, it was the right card. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm a good tired. It was a long weekend. Yeah? Yeah, well, Lucia had her birthday, and we did two back-to-back birthday parties, uh, which was exhausting. And then, you know, I had work, and then I won the lottery. You won the lottery? I did not tell you. I wanted to wait until we were recording. <laughs> okay, how much did you win? I won $14. <laughs> For th- Listeners, really? the look on Brian's face was one of doubt but glimmering hope. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know I found those two lottery tickets on the ground the other day. When I, I did, went yeah, I yes. did. And the jackpot was for $119,000, and somebody won it. Good for them. But I won $14. Me and 4,600 other people won $14. Well, that's good. Yeah. 
You know what I did with that fourteen dollars though? Bought more lottery tickets. I did. <laughs> I bought uh, for the four hundred million dollar lotto. So, folks, if Eric wins that money, we'll be doing our next episode from Barbados. <laughs> we will indeed, <laughs> from our real nerd cave that we actually had drilled down underground. Yeah, underneath somewhere in San Jose. We'll, we'll get a permit. It'll be yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll buy out the city and not. Get I do a have one condition. Yes, that we must hire a butler at that point. Oh, who was only for when we're doing podcasting. Only for when we do podcasting? A part-time butler. Yeah. Part-time butler. Is that reasonable? That's reasonable. And he has to be English. Well, naturally. No two ways about it. Oh, no, absolutely. Folks, if you're interested in becoming our butler, you can send your applications to the nerds at nerdonomy.com. <laughs> but wait to us. Wait for us to announce our, our lottery winnings first. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. Well, um, speaking of butlers... First name Alfred is preferred, but not required. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, speaking of butlers, who therefore have British accents, that leads us to our always first segment of the show. This week in Listener Feedback. So first off, let's welcome uh, Dana Carvey as a follower to us on Twitter. Yeah, holy crap. That's pretty cool. So uh, everybody go ahead and and tweet Dana Carvey how much you love Nerdonomy so he he knows. Seriously. Yeah. Do it. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Do it now. (laughs) And not unfollow us. We'll wait. (laughs) Hello, Dana Carvey. If you're listening, that's great. Party on, man. Yes. Uh, You are awesome. We love you. And please, 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 please continue to keep listening. Uh, And please come on our show. And please come on our show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, First letter of the week, however, comes from Brett. And Brett says, so I stumbled onto your Nerds on History podcast and fell in love. Oh, that's quite nice. We love you too, Brett. It's funny, informative, and shows a level of passion and nerdiness I love and exhibit myself. The only thing that makes me sad is that the Nerds on Film podcast is not available on the Windows Store or whatever it is called. I have a Windows phone, and I download all my podcasts and listen directly on my phone. Either way, keep up the work, and on top of the newest ones, I'll be hitting the backlog as I go. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, Brett, we also read that out in our Nerds on Film podcast. I'll say it again just to make sure that you catch it. There are a few ways you can subscribe to our podcast outside of iTunes. One is through Stitcher Radio, which you can go to by stitcherradio.com. And that's a cool, simple website you can go to, follow our podcast. It's a free account you can create. Very, very easy. The other way is through the number of podcast directories that we are available on. Pretty much if you Google our one of the Nerds in History Nerds in Film podcast, you'll see the multitude of directories it's on through the uh, search results. And I'm pretty sure you can find us on the Windows phone. That Maybe we have a, a problem with the link that we uploaded, uh, so we might want to check that and make sure that it's, uh, possible. it's up yeah. in the Windows directory, because I'm pretty sure we do have it on there. Uh, there may just be some sort of issue. So, Brett, we dedicate that we'll look into that, try to get it onto your Windows phone, and if not, then like uh, Brian mentioned, there's many different ways that yeah. you can listen and to it. And of course, just listening straight from our website. It's an HTML5-friendly site, so it would work on any mobile phone that has a web browser on it. Love it. Rock on. Next one comes from Abraham, and Abraham says, I've recently started listening to you guys, and I'm halfway through your episodes. Extremely entertaining, well-informative. You guys have clear passion in the subject you tackle and give refreshing views. It's actually pushing me towards starting my own sometime in the future. I would ask if there are other history podcasts or perhaps YouTube channels any of you subscribe to. Well, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History is a uh, an excellent podcast. Uh, I he was on the Nerdist last week, too. Yeah, he, he's all over the place. Um, Stuff You Missed in History Class, classic podcast. Uh, they've been around for a long time. And uh, I think that they all kind of complement Nerdonomy. I think that we have an awesome 
podcast here. So I, those would be my two big suggestions. As for YouTube channels, I don't really subscribe to a whole lot on YouTube. So I don't have a whole lot, but I heard of one recently called Drunken History, mm-hmm. which fascinated me. And I that's plan one on, I was going to bring. Is that the one you were going to say? Yeah, it was, yeah, it's yeah. pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty funny. Go out and uh, and have a glass of wine or a beer, whatever your spirit of choice is, and check out um, Drunken History. Mm-hmm. All right, and I believe that's what I've got. I think you have one from Facebook, however. I do from Stevie. Oh, Stevie, we love so, you, Stevie. Hey, fellas, great podcast again. I can't get enough of them. I feel that trying to teach such educated guys as yourselves would be massively insulting. And believe it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Stevie. What a great response. (laughs) But as an inhabitant of Portsmouth, England, I would like you to be the first Americans to actually say Portsmouth properly. Judging by the fact I just said it, I think you've gotten the feedback across. Portsmouth. 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 Um, Okay, you have a Plymouth like us, and so therefore you pronounce it like we do, Plymouth. But when it comes to saying Portsmouth, every American says Portsmouth. It's not Portsmouth, it's Portsmouth. Fair enough. It's like places with ham at the end. You know, it's a silent H. So instead of Nottingham, it's Nottingham or Rotherham or Birmingham. Got it. Yeah. It's not Birmingham. Birmingham sounds delicious. No. In fact, Nottingham, if you can get a pig to nod, now that's trick. British English does befuddle me at times because... The Queen's English. The Queen's... No, I mean Brit- British English in general, because oh, there's, right. the, there's the received pronunciation, and then there's also just whatever the colloquial pronunciation is. In either ones, the H's are kind of confusing. They tend to drop them in some places and put them back in in other places. Right. Herbs, for example. It's not herbs, it's herbs. Yeah. You know, some people support that because, you know, there's... The H is the beginning of the word, so why not just say the H sound? Sure. I don't know. There's probably some, like, Oxford elocutionist who could just, like, go to task about the whole way reason why you say certain words Either certain that ways. or Sarah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, she has said nothing about this, though. So, guys, this all sounds petty, but every time an American says the name of my city, it really winds me up. And since everything else you say is legendary, wow. Whoa. That's high praise. Legend. Wait for it. Dairy. There you go. <laughs> then I felt I may help you in any way I could. Anyways, thanks again for the great shows. Looking forward to the next. Take care, Stevie. Eric, what's, what, what do I have going on right now? What's happening? Uh, Brian has raised his arm uh, in the traditional high-five-esque fashion. And what's my other hand doing? It's been placed across his chest. Thank you. Which would be symbolic for what? You're pledging allegiance to Stevie. <laughs> Stevie, I am making a solemn oath. We will never mispronounce Portsmouth ever again. Here, here. All right. And we will double check all English pronunciations in the British English before we say it again. All right? That's my solemn vow. Wow. That got deep. It's more of an affirmation, I think, than a vow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. All right. Do we have anything else? That's it. That's all I got. Good. Let's get on with it then. (laughs) Wow, Brian, that was a little little harsh. That was a little harsh. This is a little uh, Monty Python. Get on with it! Get on with it, then! (laughs) Well, let's let's do exactly that. Let let us get on with it. So, this week, we were thinking, what would be a fun kind of topic that's really a topic twofold? Something that uh, would evolve as we talked about it. And you and I have merged together two interests of ours uh, that are really two sides of the same coin. And we're going to do a whole episode on magic. Yes. Magic, as you guys know, is the world-famous card game that involves 
hit points and power-ups and all these sorts of fun things. So that's what we're going to spend the next three hours discussing. <laughs> magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering. No, we're not doing Magic You're in the for gathering. a treat, folks. <laughs> Although that would be an extremely nerdy thing to do. Um, it would indeed. We are, we are not doing that. I am going to handle one side of this. Brian is going to handle the other. My side of the coin will be magic from the ritual standpoint. And Brian is going to do magic from the illusionist standpoint. Yeah, because it's stage magic. And here's the thing. Before we jump into the history of ritual magic, yeah, as we talked about in our theater episode, all performance is ritual. That's true. Right? I mean, if you go back to like the San Bushmen and the, the dance they would do around their fire, it is all a form of performativity. You are choosing to perform in a certain role at a certain time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? We have detached that spiritual connection to it with you know, the dawn of theater and music and all the other performing arts. At least many of us in the Western world, many of us, not all of us, some of us, uh, some of us in the Western world still hold true to, to magical beliefs, and also there are many, many sure. folks in the world. But in the terms of performance yes. aspect of it, it's been largely detached from its religious roots, unless, you're, of course, you're singing or you're doing a passion play in the act of worship. Right. So magic very much ties into that very same root, it's it's all rooted in uh, some form of, of ritual, ritual practice. Absolutely. And not surprisingly, many of the very first recorded ritual magical traditions uh, do stem from ancient Egypt. And it's been a while since I've gone on an ancient Egypt rant, so I feel it's time to bring it You've back. You've got three minutes. Make it quick. <laughs> oh, hell no. I have <laughs> listeners behind me on this one. I have an army who enjoys listening to facts about ancient Egypt, so... No, I Folks, at least please six. excuse us. No, no, I have done this podcast for nearly fifty episodes. I get to rant about Egypt. You know how long it's been since I ranted about ancient Egypt? You weren't even here. That's how long it's been, Brian. Well, I'm glad we got that resolved. Yeah, so cool. am I. All right. Anyhow, back onto my rant about ancient Egypt. So we do find in some of the very first ritual writings from Egypt, so the pyramid texts and the coffin texts, these were oftentimes associated with funeral practices, right? We've, we've talked about that Are we before. referring to the Book of the Dead or the Papyrus of Ani? We are referring to the precursors to that. Oh, okay. So before they took all of these spells and made them into the Book of the Dead, and which one version was the Papyrus of Ani, uh, there were these traditions that dated far, far earlier than that in ancient Egypt. And the first time they were written down was within the pyramid texts. So this is writings found within the pyramids of the 4th dynasty going forward. So uh, one of the most famous is actually a little bit later, the 5th dynasty of Unaeus, uh, or the uh, pharaoh of Unaeus, which he has uh, some of these ritual writings in it. So this is in the Old Kingdom? This is in the Old Kingdom, correct. All right, I remembered something. Well done. Uh, and then it moves forward into the Middle Kingdom with the, the coffin text. And in it, we have several different descriptions of what is referred to as heka. Okay, what's heka? Heka is essentially the, the all-encompassing word for magic in Egypt. It was okay. uh, the ability to modify the physical world and commune with the gods in a spiritual fashion. And what we're really talking about is the evolution of shamanism here, right? So let's let's pause for a moment and talk about that, because there are many tribes in the world today, and of course the tribes that were the origins of all the great civilizations, such as ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, 
they all started with the embodiment of shamanism as their spiritual connection to whatever they believed in. Right. There was one person in the tribe, in the the group, whose sole function was to be that interconnection. Yeah, essentially one or a small group of religious specialists, and it was their word that was communicating to the gods. So it was their job to represent the entire tribe and their beliefs and convey that to their spiritual powers and deities and things of that nature. This could be my own ignorance when it comes to the infrastructure of the cultures of these tribes. To me, more than one shaman would imply a priesthood of some kind, like a priesthood class of some kind. More like a proto-priesthood, if you will. Uh, Where the big difference comes between a shaman and a priest is that a priest represents the beliefs of the gods, which is then spread to the people. Whereas it's kind of the other way around with shamanism. Shamanism represents the the tribe and their beliefs and their connection to the spiritual world. Whereas the priest, now with an established uh, hierarchy within the religion, uh, oftentimes religious doctrine has been created. There's oftentimes uh, a written context to be referenced. Now they're using that as their basis for bringing their spiritual beliefs to the people. So in other words, uh, a priest is more of an executory role. Very true. Meaning you're just you're kind of seeing an existing belief is implemented properly. Right. And then with that comes a much more organized infrastructure, right? So that's when you have the traditional kind of priesthood and the hierarchy within the priesthood okay. and its initiations and all of those things. Well, before you get to shamanism then, the simple definition of magic I think is re- kind of important here because the definition you gave is pretty broad. We think of magic um and, and you know the immediate, immediate connotation we get is either you know Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, or something in that kind of fantastical Middle Ages sort of connotation. And really, magic is any sort of supernatural occurrence, as you're saying, that the physical world is somehow altered by other means, right? Yeah, it is. It is the uh, the supernatural. It is the paranormal forces that are believed to exist within that spiritual belief manifesting themselves in some form in the material world and are oftentimes created or amplified by the assistance of a religious specialist. So somebody whose job it is to know these magical spells, if you will, to perform these rituals, to perform these practices, proof of their beliefs uh, in the material world is essentially magic. I mean, that's, that's kind of my definition of it. And that is one that is mirrored largely by you know, a lot of folks in, in the anthropological circles around the world. Sure. It, it is uh, the means by which a community is able to co- more closely commune with their with their spiritual beliefs. So let's give some examples of this in ancient mm-hmm. Egypt. Uh, funerary rituals, very, very heavily steeped in magic. Uh, the use of a magic wand or instruments that convey a magical importance materialize in ancient Egypt going back many thousands of years. And there was a ceremony known as the opening of the mouth, which really highlights this. Uh, It is after the mummification ritual has been performed, the body is now preserved, and the soul now needs to be activated, if you will. So it resides within the body. The ka, the spiritual duplicate of a person or anything, really. A god could have a ka. uh, A pillar could have a ka anything that represented the, the the spiritual force of that. And by turning it on, activating it so that it would be able to leave the body and proceed to the afterlife and then be able to return to the body to receive nourishment in the form of you know ceremonial offerings, 
was necessary through a ritual. And the ritual involved the priest, the high priest, who would oftentimes be adorned in the images that we see with a, a leopard skin that would be draped across the shoulders and tied off on one end. And he would approach the body, uh, many times shown standing upright in its mumma form, right? So it's all wrapped up and what have you, with an ads. Are you familiar with an ads? No. It's a carpenter's tool. So essentially it is a fixed piece of metal onto a piece of wood with a handle that's been fashioned for it and it's been tied in with, uh, with leather straps. And it's used to level out the grade of uh, you know, wooden boxes like coffins, for example. So this obviously had a connection with the deceased because it was being used in the creation of funerary goods. And so they would use this to touch the mouth of the deceased, uh, the nose, the eyes, the ears, and then each of the four limbs. And by doing so, it was thought to magically activate the ka uh, in all of those respects. So the person could eat in the afterlife, could see in the afterlife, smell, hear, and of course have mobility. This is interesting because you're getting almost into wand lore. Kind of. Yeah, which to me, I, I, I'm i a Potterhead. So um, not a pothead, a Potterhead. <laughs> uh, I'm very much a fan of the Harry Potter books. And uh, people might know more about it than uh, than I do. I will admit that the wand lore I find fascinating because I won't go into the the specifics of the Potter wand lore because that's not where we're, where we're at yet. But And considering our listener base, yeah. I'm sure they're already familiar. Probably. The thing I think is really interesting is that a wand is usually some sort of element tied to some form of paranormal activity, some sort of old magic, if you will, that makes it able to be used. In this case, you're talking about what was used to prepare someone for death, right? So there's something yeah. so meaningful about that that experience that gives it almost a supernatural power, supernatural significance. A wand is essentially a focusing device. Exactly. And there are many different types of focusing devices that are used in lots of different religious practices and rituals. Uh, but in this case, the magic inside the wand is amplifying the magic of the ritual. So in this case, it's a pointer, right? So it's being used to touch and spiritually activate those areas of the body. And this is just one example of how magic was used in ancient Egypt. One of the others that really closely connects to magic as it would later be known as a performance art is the use of an oracle. And this is something that is mirrored across many different civilizations. Uh, the Babylonians were quite fond of them. We see them being used in many different cultures around the world. And the oracle in Egypt was essentially a statue representation of a deity. It was meant to house the ka of that deity. And it was either brought out during special ceremonies like the Opet Festival, which was a, a New Year's celebration, where the statue of the god was brought out into the courtyard of the temple. The temple doors were open to the general populace at this point, and people were welcome in to celebrate one aspect of that festival, which was coming to receive word of good omen or bad omen from a, from a deity. And remember, there are lots of different state deities all around Egypt. So when it was Opet festival time, it wasn't all people going to one particular god. You kind of went to your own local god, uh, which temple would be open for you during the, the festival times. Uh, one of the most spectacular, as is recorded to us, was at the temple of Amun. And Amun, whose name means the hidden one, was oftentimes uh, hidden away in a special shrine. And, and even during the ceremony when he would be brought out, he would still sometimes be contained within the shrine and then be brought out in a very grandiose way to the crowd. Uh, and these statues were always placed on barks, so little model boats, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, poles attached to them 
and the specialized priests whose job it was, essentially one of their jobs, was to hold on to the god, bring it before an individual, like the king, for example. They would ask a question, essentially yes or no, and the the priests who were holding on to it would then have this connection with the god in that moment, and they would either sway the statue forward a little bit or sway the statue back a little bit, and that would indicate a yes or no response. So this was obviously something utilized by the pharaoh probably frequently throughout the entire year, most likely um, in terms of figuring out if it was good to go into battle at this time, was this a good time to perform a rather dangerous expedition to open up new trade routes, there would have been plenty of opportunity to find counsel with this god if you were the king, and for everybody else during these festival times when they would actually bring the statues out, uh, they would have hundreds if not thousands of people coming to go ahead and ask these questions. It got to the point where it really became a system. Uh, and it, Egypt's new kingdom, after doing this for quite some time, at least we think, we don't really see examples of oracles uh, popping up until later into the new kingdom. So there may have been a similar practice to this beforehand, but we don't know exactly when it developed. But during the time the new kingdom came about and they had all these people coming in, uh, you would find these teeny tiny little scrolls of papyrus. And chances are you weren't literate, so you had a scribe who was performing this function for the, for the ceremony of, of the festivals. And you would write down your request upon it, and you would have, always have two. You would have a, a positive response and a negative response. So you would essentially fill in the blanks. You would write, am I going to have a bountiful field this year, or am I going to have a non-bountiful field this year? Am I going to have regular crops or no good crops? You would make your request to the statue of the god, you would place it within its possession, and then you would receive back either a yes or a no. So you would get back the one that uh, the god was responding to. And how would that work? Like, what would be the... Whatever medium, if you will, or whatever person was channeling the ka of that god, whatever priest who was there, uh, would use their spiritual intuition, if you will, and decide which is the one that the god wanted you to have. Interesting. So I, I don't know if he a... just kind of like put it behind his back and shuffled it around a little bit and said, nope, there you go. I have to make a Catholicism parallel. Shocking. Only fair. Only fair. Papal elections. The College of Cardinals don't believe that they are the ones electing the next pope. Right. They believe they're acting as the tool of the Holy Spirit, basically. In a way, you're kind of talking about the same idea. Is that the human being is trying to become a vessel, a channel for the divine to work their will, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's a, a trend we see throughout many religions, throughout many cultures. Oh, yeah. It's mirrored throughout pretty much everybody. There's some sort of channeling. There's some sort of connection with, with a spirit. Yeah. Uh, and you'll find that in Egypt, you have these very specific examples that are very specific to Egyptian culture, but then you have many, many different forms of magical practices uh, that were intended for healing purposes. And that is the most common form of magic uh, that has been used around the world, right? Uh, obviously, it's many times linked in with the placebo effect and other psychological influences that are happening, but it can have a positive reinforcement on people. Uh, a good example of this is in, uh, in ancient Egypt, again, when a child became ill, uh, many times a baby, they would drink milk from a specially designed cup. And this cup was in the shape of this uh, deity known as Bess. Uh, and he was this very small, lion-faced, kind of almost kind of grotesque little uh, god who would dance around with daggers and, and sinstrums, rattles, essentially, to scare away evil. He oftentimes have his tongue sticking out, too. And wouldn't it also be common to leave the glass of milk 
underneath the the crib or whatever the bed of the child would be too? Uh, I'm not too sure about that in ancient Egypt. Uh, I know certainly that the magic happens when the milk is poured into the vessel. Okay. So the vessel really contains the magic. Okay. And when the child drinks it, particularly a baby who doesn't have the benefit of a nipple to get the milk down, uh, a lot of air forms. And any parent like myself knows what happens when a baby has air in its stomach. It burps. It doesn't just burp. It, it usually vomits. pukes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get spit up. So if you're witnessing this as a concerned parent, you're seeing this child now spit up and you're spitting up the evil. You're spitting up whatever illness and sickness that is causing the child. Uh, children of an older age would be told and believed that from you know infancy that this milk that was now in this special container would provide them healing properties. And they believed it wholeheartedly. And when you are more calm and relaxed, your immune system generally is much better, able to fight off illness. And as a result, you have someone who could potentially improve in their health. It doesn't mean that there's any actual magic that's going on here, but the placebo effect is definitely taking place. And it was so important that this passed on to other cultures and civilizations, including the Romans. Uh, they had received it through trade routes. When they had invaded Egypt and taken over Egypt, uh, they would make their beer glasses out of the god Bess and would drink their beer from these little Bess jars in hopes that it would provide them safety and health on the battlefield. Yeah. In other words, you find magic in pretty much every ancient religion with the exception of one. Which is that? Judaism. That would be debated as well. Well, so here's the thing. Judaism does very specifically deny uh, the practice of magic, but there are certain... Um, there are certain rituals that definitely are magically sounding in nature. Yes, absolutely. and they are approved of because they exist uh, within you know, ancient Jewish uh, sacred text. Well, there are certain things, certain acts, certain forms of magic, if you will, that are forbidden in the Old Testament and, of course, carried on to the New, New Testament and onward from there. Uh, divination, necromancy, which you might be able to explain necromancy better than I could, uh, astrology, hypnotism, fortune-telling, and any sort of, sort of other attempts to use the supernatural to your own will. Right. Can you explain necromancy again? Real sure. Quick? So, well, there's a couple different um, interpretations of it, but necromancy is oftentimes associated with conjuring. So conjuring up spirits, conjuring up demons, usually. It's usually spirits with a negative force. Right. Um, and they can even be used to reanimate the deceased and things of that right. nature. So it, it has a lot of different... It's evolved and changed very much, and there's different forms of necromancy around the world, but that is the, the general... So yes, essentially trying to awaken the dead in some Awaken the dead or awaken, awaken the, the spirit, spirit is more common. Right. The 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 effect Summon of the spirit. inhabiting of the dead is more specific to certain cultures. Right. And it has become more associated with the word necromancy these days, but its truest origin it refers more simply to the conjuring of spirits. Yeah, summoning summoning spirits basically. Yeah. I'd like to take a second to explain why that culture seems to have such a different belief structure. Even though a lot of the rituals that we talk about with ancient Jewish worship, uh, the holiest of holies, the place believing that there was one place physically on earth where God was present, yeah. you know, and that a lot of the rituals tied into that interaction are magical in their nature. What they found as the definition of magic in the negative context is that ancient Jews believed that God was the only source of supernatural power. And it was not our place to summon the will of God. Right. We submitted to God's will. God's will cannot be worked. Yeah, and if God wants wins. to give you help, God's going to give you help. You don't tell God what to do, in other words. Exactly. So all of these acts are, in fact, reason why they are forbidden is because 
these are seen as ways of man trying to control God. Right, which is exactly what we're talking about with shamanism, right? And then when we transition into the priesthood now, now that's where that transition's happening, like you're talking about with Judaism. Uh, God is supreme, whatever God it might be, and that we are here to spread the word of that, and if you're good to that God, that God will be good to you, not the other way around. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, well, I will say that for many cultures, though, the the practice of rituals and associated with healing are, are very, very important. And whether it's magical or not, that, again, permeates around the world. Yeah, and you, the, the same thing happens in Christianity, too. I mean, mm-hmm. there are patron saints of illness. You know, you yeah. pray that a saint will intercede on God's behalf to, exactly. to help you heal better, or you pray to God directly. But it's your you are asking for. So there is still very much that kind of ritual of it's almost like a, a spell because you're never yeah. sure the spell is going to work, right? Exactly. Even if you're talking about a more magically contextual uh, religion like Wicca, for example, mm-hmm. or what you've been talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, also let, let's have a look at the Greeks for a second too, because the Greeks and their use of magic was very much more associated with the uh, the rituals and rites around healing again. And this is because of a very intimate relationship between uh, the passage of information from the Egyptians to the Greeks. We think of the Greeks as being these great bringers of so much of, of Western culture, but a lot of that originated in Egypt, in particular a lot of these these magic spells and things of that nature. And they passed over as you know medicinal folk- folklore into uh, Greek culture. And that was absorbed and, and used in a large extent. Yeah, I mean, speaking of Greece. for health reasons, Hippocrates, right? Hippocrates' theories were all derived from Egypt, were they not? Well, I wouldn't say all, but he studied and was inspired tremendously by the Egyptians. There you Absolutely. go. It's interesting because, you know, when you look at the Greeks and you look at the Romans, many of their ritual practices, again, were borrowed largely from the Egyptians. And many of their magical practices are associated with the, the two parallels, health and war. <laughs> Not surprisingly. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Not surprisingly. What I find very interesting, though, is that the, the styling of the word magic and where its origins lie. And its origins lie actually in a misconception, a misconception held by the Greeks against their longtime enemies, the Persians. So the word magi, you're familiar with Yeah, it, of course right? I'm familiar with it because it's, it's told in the story of Christ. The magi were the men from the East who could read the stars and, uh, you know, they were able to find the, the birth of the king, right? And that's how, exactly, that, that is how many people in the Western world that it's been introduced to. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about the ancient Persians, where the word originates from, uh, that was also associated with those wise men who were astrologers. They looked at the sky and they believed that it would tell fates and things of that nature. And to the Greeks, because of their, their hostile relationship with the Persians for so many years, that was viewed in a negative light. So that was viewed as a type of conjuring. That was viewed as a type of invoking of spirits to, to change the world, to be able to foretell fates in the future. That was something that was negative to them. And so the word magic was derived from this word magi, which most likely had nothing to do with Zoroastrianism, by the way. Uh, it, it is believed that there were kind of proto-Zoroastrianist priests at the time, um, but it was not in any way directly connected with that later form. So for those who don't understand what Zoroastrianism is, it's uh, the fourth major monotheistic religion. Yes. Uh, it was very prominent in Central Asia, i.e. the Middle East, 
And essentially, it is a monotheistic religion that follows the teachings of one prophet, Zoroaster, or Zoroastra, depending mm-hmm. on which pronunciation you have. That's all. I'll, I'll go into If you want to look it up, you can look it up online. Yeah, we can. We just don't have a lot of time to go into detail right now. If you're interested, we can do a whole episode on Zoroastrianism, if you like, because it, it's a fascinating concept to me. I agree, absolutely. But, um, yeah, th- that we shall save for a future episode, yeah. absolutely. So, for the record, pre-Christianity, pre uh, birth of Islam, Zoroastrianism was widespread throughout the Middle East. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> for whatever reason the word um, comes into use and, and evolves, uh, it sticks around and it becomes our modern word in English for, for magic. Uh, and it exists to the day as, a, yeah. exists I mean, to this day as a handover from the it, Greeks. Yeah. And I mean, it carries into um, to Latin too. I mean, the Latin word for a wizard is a magus, and, and it obviously has the same root syllable in it that you get from, from Persian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or if you want to make a Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> reference, a mage. A mage. Yes. Yeah. I want to be the white mage. I want to heal people. <laughs> it's interesting how white is always associated in Western culture with purity and with healing and with all the positive things, but white and Eastern culture is associated with death. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Well, the white and Western culture is associated with light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it should be more a light mage and a dark mage. Uh, you know, it's associated with, with those things that are warm and, and bright and not dangerous or scary. Whereas the dark, uh, which has always been scary to people since, you know, pre-tribal societies, since hunter-gatherers existed, you know, more around in yeah. those societies, the darkness is what is terrifying and frightening yeah. to so us. So I guess it becomes this innate mechanism to associate all divine with day and with light time and exactly. all unholy with, with what is dark and what is what not. What is scary, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Fear. Yeah. Very, very fascinating that sure. psychological connection. And that does bring us to the other form of magic practiced in a spiritual sense, which would be dark magics, right? So curses and spells of a negative nature, which are oftentimes almost always fabricated you very rarely find actual written evidence of these really negative magics. You, you find far more of the positive and the health-bringing ones because it made more sense. Think about how you were using magic. It was usually used in your own community. Mm-hmm. Why would you want the detri- detriment of your own community? Why would you want to create a whole set of spells that were going to be used against yourself? There are certainly ones that were used against your enemies, and we find some of those associated with battles and, and you know, with uh, traitors and people who were, you know, associated with uh, with the more the less desirable people within certain communities within certain cultures. But you find it in a far lesser degree everywhere around the world, which I find very interesting. Yeah, interestingly enough, the the term cursing how it gets associated with us speaking in poor language draws back to i mean yes it goes back to biblical times but obviously cursing back then does not mean cursing today right cursing was again and you're invoking god you better mean it that the whole thou shalt not take god's name in vain was not, nothing to do with swearing in the sense that we say it today right it was to swear by god you were invoking god strike me down or god strike you down if you were lying or things like that when you're calling god into it you better be serious you know well more than just that it's an insult if you consider it with from that priestly sense whereas with yeah. the shamanic sense it's different right. because now you're you're utilizing that power of god because you you have that power within you in this case you're asking like we explained earlier right. 
for God to do something for you. And to do otherwise is to profane God, right? Yeah. What does the word profane mean? The word profane means to put in front of what is fane, fane being what is sacred. So to make something that is supposed to be sacred secular is what profanity means and that's I think what Sarah person, would be so proud of you right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's important. It's a very important thing. And so therefore, whenever you are taking a, a sacred oath and making it you know, commonplace, that is profane. So like if you were to stub your toe and you were to yell, Jesus Christ, and you were to say that in a method that was not in reference to, to worshiping God, that is considered profanity. That would in the, in the true classical biblical sense be considered profanity. Interesting. If I were to call you a shithead, that's not... <laughs> that is... And Sean, please do not bleep that out, because I want, want to make a really important point here. That is not strictly considered profanity, because there's nothing, there's nothing about the divine that's associated with that. Hmm. Where it did get that way was in puritanical times, where since you're now focusing on a much more rigid view of Christianity, and this is, of course, in the 1500s, 1600s, and moving on from there, that you get this sense that anything that was outside of this pleasant and rigid form of living was profane. Yeah. So even words that were unsavory were considered to be not within the, the context of God. So therefore, that's why bad words that we think of today, like the F word, obviously what I just said out loud, damn, depending on your persuasion, those are all why they're considered bad words. Hmm. Nothing to do with magic anymore, nothing to do with invoking the divine as a means of harming somebody else. Yeah, it just passed down to us in, in that fashion now. Yeah, and I th that was a bit of a detour, I know, but it, it's an important one, I think. It is an important one. I'm glad that you brought it up, because it, uh, you know, we oftentimes use so many words and never think about their origins, never think about where they actually come from and how they're associated with what they mean, because they don't always have such a clear-cut example of, of what they are. I just had an idea. We should do an episode, a deliberately explicit episode on the the origin of curse words. I have a feeling we're going to get a lot of listener feedback requesting that one. <laughs> Folks, we put it out there. Let us know what you think about that. Yes. Well, since we've talked a lot about the ancient origins, is it okay? Do you have anything else you want to add? Because I'd like to, to move forward to Middle Ages if we could. I was going to suggest the exact same thing. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page. So getting into the Middle Ages, where obviously Christianity has dominated Europe at this point. Right. The church forbade a lot of these ritual practices that were due to you know, most of these pagan yes. religions. And there is now one form of paganism. Pagan just refers to the religion of peasant, peasants, the religions of the peoples that, that were being conquered, essentially, yes. as the church was expanding throughout Europe. So Christianity had less of an issue with mysticism and these forms of magic early on. In fact, in Ireland, there's a the, uh, very in the ancient church before congregation, there was lots of these forms of very interesting Christianity where they were intertwined with the mystical teachings oh, yeah. of where they grew up. Well, they had to accept them. They had to, to a certain degree, they had to allow some leeway with this. We see that with many pagan rituals and traditions that were modified and became religious traditions and or holidays of the pagans that were modified and became of course uh, very famous religious holidays they had to make these exceptions so that the populace would be okay with the slow and gradual changes that were later to come so that being said that's why uh, magic was still uh, forbidden in these these times right as we get toward the I would say, again, the 1500s, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, yeah. we start to see a much more uh, rigid view against magic, and more by Protestants than, than by Catholics, though. But yes, of course, the, I mean, St. Joan of Arc, ironically, was 
burned at the stake because she was burned for being a witch through some sort of dark satanical means. And that's what the church defined as witchcraft. Right. Was using the devil or worshiping the devil in the means to harm other people. And then, of course, all these other superstitions became associated with those acts, being able to fly on broomsticks or be able to fly in general, uh, being able to you know create people, cause people to be ill, turning people into animals, all those kinds of things. <laughs> Most people who were practicing magic were just doing parlor tricks. But it was at this time period, though, where they didn't see the difference. They saw a, any form of conjuring, any form of material effect that was being produced in front of the eye of the beholder as some form of magic. Yeah, and I would say it would go beyond just the, the charlatans who were there performing, you know, tricks and jipes on people, but it was also uh, the persecution of those who were still practicing pagan rituals and traditions yeah. uh, who were not accepted by the church and who were trying to be weeded out. And what better way to do it than to blame these people for illness and all these horrible things that are going on and tell people that if you don't burn them, if you don't kill them right now, your families will be in danger. Indeed. Until one fateful year, mm. 1584. I love that year. And the why is because there was a book published called The Discovery of Witchcraft. It's actually a much longer title than that, but The Discovery of Witchcraft is how it's mostly referred to. You had a joke you were going to say, weren't you? I, yeah, I was. Oh, okay. It's fine. The okay, moment's sorry. gone. The moment's gone. Uh, written by a man named Reginald Scott. And why is this important? Because Great he- Scott! Great Scott! Okay, I replaced my previous joke where the moment was gone, with a joke that was within the moment. Thank you. Go ahead. The discovery of witchcraft by Reginald Scott disproved the existence of magic. This is highly controversial for the Middle Ages, especially when you're dealing with a high level of occultism. Shakespeare wrote about occultism in his plays because he believed that these things actually happened. You know, ghosts were believed to run around at night. It was a, a commonly accepted belief in the culture of of Europe and another obviously in other places as well. This book pretty much goes through and explains all the magical quote-unquote occurrences and explains them mostly as nothing more than just illusions or nothing more than misconceptions. And it was originally by many Protestant clergy disregarded. It was it was considered um, even by King James the sixth uh, of Scotland who was actually also King James the first. King James the first and sixth Weird story about that. We'll have to talk about that another time. <laughs> but um, he even said that the the works were damnable. And this is the man who is speaking as in his um, capacity as the head of the Church of England at this point. But it was obviously one that was a major turning point because now we've established the idea that magic is now not simply a ritual; it is now trickery. Well, right? there there is that, but I think it also is worth mentioning uh, hermetics for a moment as well and the hermetic movement because for many people. Yes, there was the conjuring tricks and things of that nature, but there was also still a belief that magic was just an undiscovered form of science, that there were actual magical going-ons that could be explained by science and then used by science to to move scientific means. Yeah, and as we get into the later half of the first millennium, we start to see that the lines between science and magic are really not like drawn until the late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. What I find really fascinating is, first off, do you know the first book on magic that was written? I do not. Hocus Pocus Jr. It was published in 1638, and it was the first English book devoted entirely to teaching of magic tricks. Hocus Pocus, really? Hocus Pocus Jr. The use of that word goes back that far. Indeed. That's really interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yep. And of course, Hocus Pocus was 
some sort of spell word that was be, that was believed to have been passed around from before then. So that's when you start to see the shift. Where now not, magic is not simply something that is spiritual, but can also be something performed. And that people can learn how to do. But the real sense of modern magic, as we see it today, doesn't happen until the early 19th century. And, and at all, this point now, we're talking about illusionists. We're talking about the, correct. the change where now, because of organized religion, we've more or less moved out and away from the belief in the in the magical and supernatural, and we're now using that as a tool of entertainment. Correct. And there actually is something called gospel magic, believe it or not. Hmm. The use of illusions to draw people into the faith. Oh, you know, I have heard of that before. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it is obviously accepted that it is a, an illusion at first, but it kind of, it's done, done with a point, of course. So magic, as we know, starts in the early 19th century, as I was mentioning earlier, and it starts with pretty much one man. Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Houdin. You can guess where he was from. Cleveland. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to say Toledo. I think it sounds more like uh, a resident of Toledo, Ohio. No, obviously he was from Paris. Um, and he, Paris, I think... Paris, Ohio? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> really? Paris, France, Oh, of that course. Paris, yeah. Yeah, uh, that one, yeah. <laughs> oh, magic makes you snarky, doesn't it? It does indeed. <laughs> Robert Houdin's story I find fascinating because he was a watchmaker by trade, hmm. and that which, which was his grandfather's trade, and he wanted to learn that and to make that was his profession. And he fell into magic by pure accident. He was on stage, and he walked into a box. No, 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 no. I'm oh, sorry. That's he, how I fall into magic. He had gone to a bookstore, and had uh, the orders were mixed up. He would ordered two books on uh, watchmaking techniques, and the books he gotten instead were these books that were about scientific tricks, quote-unquote. Hmm. Amaze your friends with science. Or it was something to that effect. And instead of saying, well, what's, what's this? And um, getting mad and trying to change the order around, he got curious. Hmm. And so he started to study these tricks. And eventually, he started performing at, like, dinner parties for his friends. And he got really quite good at what he was doing. And this, this is the guy, pretty much, who set the format for the Magic Act. Robert Houdin believed that as you're doing your act, each trick should build off the previous one until it gets more and more impressive, right? That's why you're over here at the big finish. Mm-hmm. It's because, hey, it was your best trick. It was your best trick in your lot, right? It's really old, an old performance trick because you want to start strong and end strong. And when the vaudeville era took place, started coming about the mid-19th century, that's when he really capitalized this. He opened the first theater that was devoted to magic in Paris. Hmm. And he was the guy who kind of set... The, the formality of it. You know, you came out nicely dressed and you had assistance and you did the whole act. You know, your whole act was probably like an hour and a half or so. You were the show, basically. Wow. Most magicians got their act, like they do one trick in a vaudeville review. And then if they were really good, then they were being booked as their own, you know, act in another theater. I mean, you don't even get that in Vegas these days. You know, mm. you, you don't get a magic show that generally lasts that long unless you're like some super, super wealthy. Exactly. Or, like, or Penn, like Penn and Teller, basically. Penn and Teller or, or David Copperfield-esque. Yeah. Oh, exactly. If you're lucky, you mostly will find magicians performing a street magic now. That's the closest, most accessible way you can really get people to see what you're trying to do, you know? It's very hard to get a magic act booked anywhere nowadays, let alone... <laughs> yeah, even a kid's the, birthday party, it's hard these days. It's true. It's very true. Magic, unfortunately, is a struggling art form. I wouldn't. I don't want to say it's dying, because it's not like it's going to eventually go away. It will always exist, but it is a struggling art form. 
I think it probably needs to evolve and change. Sure. I think it has them anyways. And when when you really think about it and you think about how it started as really a way of, of pinching pockets and evolving into one of the most beloved art forms uh, in the world today. It's it's kind of an incredible story. Uh, because, I, you know, before Robert Houdin, you had people out on the streets who were playing the, the, the cup game, right? So you put a little ball or mm-hmm. nut or what have you, and you put cups on it, and you move them around, and through a sleight of hand, you end up, uh, you know, pinching this guy's yeah. coin on the table while your assistant actually goes around and pinches his, the rest of his pocket. Yeah, and <laughs> actually, um, and there are reports of illegal rings of those being broken up in London as recently as, like, the, I think, 1990s. That's incredible. Yeah. So it went on from the 15th century just up until 20 years ago. Yeah, and those the, the, no, the cup and ball trick is one that has been done on stage for quite some time now. It's been more formalized, more legitimized. But the nutshell trick, as you're referring to, is just a variation on that. So is three-card Monty. Where you're trying to find the queen, you right. know, it's all variations on the same concept. Is you're trying to find it, and you're trying to confuse the person into not finding where it really is, yeah. or you're misdirecting them rather. And misleight of hand. Yeah, all magic tricks share one common principle, which is the use of misdirection. The audience sees what you want them to see. You lead them one way while you're actually taking them the other way, hmm. and that's the principle behind any form of magic. Uh, and it's, it's without it, it just doesn't work. You know, the illusion is totally destroyed without that so that's why it's so performance oriented is you have to you have to be able to convince the audience that you believe what you're doing so well that they are totally amazed when you pull off the end of that well that at its very core is magic in all of its forms if you're talking about ancient uh spiritual magic you are doing this in order to convince and convey a sense of confidence in that particular religious belief. Belief, exactly. And it all comes down to that. And particularly when it comes to magic for medical purposes, it's all about the belief. Yeah. And some magicians will argue that they shouldn't be called magic anymore because they think that's too old hat. Mm. Uh, They want to be considered illusionists, like you said. And it's up to the magician. I think some magicians feel that not calling yourself a magician or not calling the act magic Mm kind of loses its charm. It loses... Pun intended. You I, know? I agree with that completely. Because when you think about what magic does, is it, it's, it conveys that sense of wonder. It conveys a sense of amazement. Uh, and if you take that away and it just becomes an illusion at that point, it's a trick. It's not really... You know, it's not really fun at that point. You're yeah. just being tricked. Why would you want to be tricked? Well, I, I theater, think magic is the perfect word for it. Well, the, the word we have for it in theater is the willing suspension of disbelief. Which is really hard to say at kids' parties, so we just call it magic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is. It's In fact, that is. You have to believe strong enough that the audience starts to kind of temporarily say, okay, I know you're lying, but I'm just going to go with it for a little bit and pretend that this is real. You know, what is life without that whimsical escape, you know? I agree. Now, do you know where the traditional garb of a magician comes from with the top hat and the coat and tails and all that stuff? I can imagine a magician at one point went to get his clothing cleaned. Uh, so this is a serious question? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I think he probably got mixed up with uh, a wedding uh, with a groomsman's outfit. But you totally destroyed my joke, so go ahead. I did. I'm yeah. sorry. You did it on purpose. That's fine. Alexander Herman was his name. Uh, Alexander Herman was the first performing magician who... If you even just look at him, he's like, oh, he totally is a magician. Because if you look at his face, he's got, like, the big handlebar mustache, <laughs> and he's got the goatee, and he's got kind of the slightly balding head, so his hair kind of juts out to the sides. 
you just put a top hat on him and he looks like a magician, right? The classical concept of the magician. Well, it was because of Alexander Herman, who was also French, and he was kind of a young man. He only died in 1996. He was only about 52 years old when he passed away. So a young man. Yeah, a very young man. But his nickname he had earned, because he was believed to this day to be the greatest magician you ever saw. He was just so good at sleight of hand. So much so that he earned the title Herman the Great. Hmm. So when you hear someone the great drives back from this guy. Interesting. Yeah, or the amazing so-and-so. Mm-hmm. These are all kind of names that were derived from the reputations that you would get from magicians, right? Titles, really, is what they are. Exactly. Just like uh, religious specialists would also oftentimes right. have titles. These guys had titles, now, too. Now, the thing I found really interesting about Robert Houdin, since we're talking about the same time period here, but Houdin uh, died in 1871, So, and he was you know, in his late 60s, so he was also fairly young, but for the time period about... That's not too bad. Not too bad. But Houdin got to the point where he was starting to perform before royalty, mm. and he performed before Napoleon III. And he was so impressed that he actually had Rob, uh, Robert Houdin sent in uh, when he was trying to conquer uh, one of his foreign lands. Uh, I'm trying to find the, the, the place they did it. Oh, it was in Algeria. He went to Algeria and performed his magic acts in front of him to show the power of him. And the big one, the, one of the big tricks that Houdin was good at was the bullet catching trick, where you're supposed to be able to fire a gun at him and you'd be able to catch the bullet. Uh-huh. They had the uh, Algerian Arabs fire guns at him, and he would, it would be all be a setup, of course, yeah. but they would have him catch bullets in their teeth to show that how supernaturally powerful Houdin was as a way of subjugating uh, the Algerians to make them think that basically Napoleon was all powerful. That could have ended really bad. It could have ended really well. I'll tell you another <laughs> story where that trick ended very, very badly. Do you know of a magician called Chung Ling Su? Uh, no. Chung Ling Su was actually an American named William Robinson, but he couldn't hack it as an American magician, so he decided to rip off uh, the name of an actual Chinese magician who had worked really hard to gain a reputation for himself. His name was Ching Ling Fu, so he decided to come call himself Chung Ling Su. That and is horrible. It's it's terrible, yeah, but it's funny because they actually got into a rivalry uh, over who was the more authentic Chinese uh, magician. Obviously, Ching Ling Fu was the, the authentic one, um, but Chung Ling Su was just this American, and he never spoke English on stage. He always had someone interpret for him. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Until, of course, the fateful night where his gun trick went wrong, because he hadn't been cleaning the guns properly, mm-hmm. so there was uh, some gunpowder residue. Uh-huh. Uh, and instead of the bullet being blocked, it fired and hit him in the chest. And that's when he said, oh, dear God, something's gone wrong. Pull the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> well, those his actual words. Those were his actual last words, and then he died on stage. Uh, you because know what that's called? Irony. <laughs> I was going to say karma. Uh, yeah, you're going to be... You know what? Good, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah. Um, a variation on Chung Ling Su is actually seen in the movie The Prestige. The old Chinese man who they're going to go see is the magician. He is basically their version of Chung Ling Su. Chung Li Su or Chung Li... Or... Uh, Ching Ling Fu. What, essentially, the, the the idea of the this conjuring coming from the East, from the Orient. Got it. As they saw it, right? And there were other people there. Um, there was another... Uh, I think Robinson... I can't... I couldn't find the source to prove it, unfortunately, but I remember he had tried another concept before Chung Ling Su where he had uh, become uh, a fakir. Hmm. It was like a, a Sufi Indian magic man. And uh, that concept didn't work either. So he eventually moved over to becoming... Chung Ling Su hmm. instead. That's kind of a tangent, but I just saw the bullet trick and I had to kind of draw that parallel. 
So obviously magic was becoming very popular in Europe, but it was also becoming popular in the United States. And more importantly, the first great American magician that we can talk about was Howard Thurston. And he carried along uh, the same kind of decorum of wearing the white tails and, and coat and all that. And, I mean, if you look at some of his old posters, they, they are amazing pieces of art. Because like this one you can see, as I'm showing Eric, is one where he's got two little demons hmm. on his shoulders. You know, this whole mindset that, you know, there's still this cultural idea that even though we know it's illusion, he's, they're trying to show that he, they can conjure the powers of the supernatural yeah. with them, you know? And and whereas, you know, 200 years earlier, he would have been burned at the stake. Now people are paying money to go see him. Exactly. So he kind of derived his style from from Alexander Herman, I would say. Thurston was more derived from Herman than he was of Houdin. Uh, and he did some amazing tricks. He has, he did some tricks that Houdin would do, like he'd do card tricks. But not just card tricks, tricks where like the card would levitate out of the deck. Hmm. You know, stuff that visually defied all logic, you know? Interesting factoid, this also coincides with the invention of the fishing line. <laughs> exactly. I have no idea if that's true or not. No. <laughs> well, there is actually something that's close to that. I can't give it away because I've taken the magician's oath and that would be... I, I would have magic ninjas come in the night. Wow, and kill you've me. taken a magician's oath. You've taken an oath to Stevie. You've taken oaths all over the place. I have. Yeah, yeah. The solemn magician's oath is that you do not reveal a trick to a non-magician unless they take the oath as well to not reveal it to another non-magician. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's actually in the verbiage of the oath. So anyway, um, I believe you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I used to do magic as a kid. As, uh, that was actually no joke from the cold open. I actually really did do magic as a kid. I know you did. I was thinking about becoming a magician for a while. This is in between the actor and priest phase. <laughs> and as a reminder to our listeners, this is why we call the show Nerds on History. Indeed. I won't talk too much about Thurston, but Thurston was originally a partner with another uh, magic performer named uh, Harry Keller. And Keller was kind of the primary man, and then eventually the act was eventually shifted over to, to Thurston. So um, around this time period, Thurston was a guy who died in 1936 so we kind of bring him more toward middle of the 19th or the middle of the 20th century and around the era of thurston we can transition over to well really only one other man you can talk about when you're talking about magic right uh carrot top really <laughs> he wasn't even a magician he was a prop comic is a prop comic yeah and it's an absolute miracle that his career is what it is <laughs> The only thing that could have made that happen was through the power of magic. But any, anyhow, go ahead. You were, of course, referring to uh, Harry Houdini. Harry Houdini, right? Who, do you know his, what his real name was? No, I don't, actually. Eric Feiss. Great name. He was Should have kept it. He was a uh, Eastern European immigrant. I want to say he was from Germany, but I think I might be wrong. I don't think he was. Wasn't uh, he Hungarian? Oh, no, he's Hungarian. Thank you. His name, Harry Houdini, of course, derives from Houdin. Because Houdin's name is spelled mm. H-O-U-D-I-N. All he did was add an I to it. <laughs> and it was in honor of Robert Houdin. Uh, Thurston was the king of cards for a long period of time. Because he was that was his ma- one of his masteries. Uh, in addition to other cool tricks, he did the whole levitating rope climbing trick. He did lots of cool stuff. Houdini did cards early on. But he mostly was known for two major tricks that got him really to the point of fame. One was called the Metamorphosis, which is a really, actually, if it's done well, it's a really, really cool trick. And lots of magicians have stolen it and done it and done their own means of it. The goal is the person is put in a bag and locked in a chest, mm. right? And then the assistant stands on top of them. And then they, they have a, like a cape or a, or a curtain or something. And they basically count to three. And each time they do it, they pull the curtain up, right? 
So the goal is one, two, and on the third time, the magician catches it and it says three. And then when you uh, open up the chest, it's the assistant who's been locked up in the, the bag the whole time. It's a very impressive illusion when pulled off the right way. That was one of the ones that kind of got him going. The other one was Houdini was a guy in really good shape, and he liked to prove that he could do that kind of magic. There's always fascination about being locked and doing escape artistry, escapistry. He was put in a, a farmer's milk jug, like these giant little milk jugs. They, they'd be filled with water, and he'd be locked inside of it. And he'd be in these things for like, you know, two, three minutes, and people would be like, oh my god, he's going to die. And usually it'd be at like the last moment when the people were about to take off the shroud that was covering it and call the police that he would apparently stumble out, <laughs> you know, gasping for air, is to kind of show the wonderment of it, right? He was really good at making people think, oh my god, something's gone wrong. Hmm. <laughs> uh, it was all an act the entire sure, time. He yeah. was totally safe. And of course he did other tricks, like he did uh, jumping or being you know, buried under ice, and they even had moments where the police would make shackles, would build shackles for him to prove that they, uh, to see if he could get out of them. And he would get out of each and every single one of them. He was just a master at figuring that kind of stuff out. Uh, but he also had one other thing he did. He took up the cause of being an activist for people who are misusing magic. So Eric, can you tell me, off of your memory, what was a pretty popular movement that took place in the late 1800s to the early 1900s? that involved the paranormal oh well something that i do quite often on the show when i uh when i have a seance and i channel history exactly spiritualism right these people who they've claimed these mediums these psychics who claim they could talk to the dead a lot of them were using magic were using illusions uh as a means of tricking people sure everyone's sitting around the table and they have some sort of uh piston activated device underneath or so that they could shake and, exactly. and conjure up the spirits and uh, one of the uses, one of the most interesting uses of, of photography was these purported um, ectoplasms that could be right. seen emerging from people that were oftentimes smoke tricks and smoke effects that were captured on film. Exactly. Well, this really kind of pissed Houdini off. And he, so he made a mission of him while he was still alive to expose as many mediums um, as he could who were complete and utter frauds. Some people speculate it had to do with the death of his mother. That when he went to a seance, hoping for some actual spiritual closure, he saw the tricks in front of him, and it just angered him so much that he just kind of went on a long crusade against all these people. And it was very interesting, because he was friends with Arthur Conan Doyle. And Arthur Conan Doyle was a man who believed that fairies actually existed. So, you know, kind of that interesting dichotomy mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, uh, you know, one was trying to disprove the belief of magic because he was an illusionist, and it was trying to in ways kind of try to find the proof of magic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and it's an interesting parallel. Yeah. So anyway, Houdini, of course, met a very early end. Yes, he did. In a very unusual circumstances, really. Well, he was known for having the iron midriff. I mean, he was, right. the guy was in extremely good shape. People could take blows at him and apparently it wouldn't harm him at all. He'd be just fine. Right. So the, uh, the legend as it has is that he was punched, he was sucker punched by uh, a guy in his stomach and one of his tricks he did was the chinese water torture chamber where he would be hung upside down in a tank of water and you know houdini was known for swallowing keys and and having such good muscle control that he could regurgitate regurgitate yeah. the key and then use that as his means to mm -hmm. to free himself according to this myth because of the bruising in his stomach he was unable to cough up the key and therefore uh drowned not true at all um he in fact just had appendicitis 
clear cut yeah. case of appendix, and his appendix burst while he was performing. And uh, they knew something was wrong. They cut him free. He survived the trick, but he died, I think, the next day uh, in his hospital. And uh, he died on Halloween, on October 31st. So for those who still believe in uh, Houdini, there is actually a group of people who go to his gravesite in, uh, in I think, Los Angeles hmm. every year. And they have a, not a seance, because that's kind of ironic, but yeah. they have, a, um, <laughs> but they have a, a vigil in Houdini's name every year. And they all uh, regurgitate uh, candles right. and then light them. But why is Houdini important? Well, because Houdini was the first magician to really capture the uh, the inspiration of mass media, right? He was the first magician to really gather media attention because he was walking across a skyscraper or doing these really, really cool tricks that would uh, be get captured on film. You know, he was one of the early magicians to be caught on film. And he kind of set the template for the postmodern magician, the guys who are the Penn and Tellers, who are the David Copperfields, the guys who use television and use mass media modern mass media as their means of reaching their, the widest audience possible. Really he, just an inspiration for so many future generations of individuals who are captivated by magic, who want to share it with others, like yourself. Exactly. And Houdini, of course, died in the early 1930s, or late 1930s himself. So he didn't die too much longer after Thurston did. Now, you said you wanted to take a second and talk a little bit about the nature of magic in another mass media form, right? Which was movies. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about Industrial Light and Magic, who are, you know, one of the leading special effects houses in America, mm-hmm. the name is all in it, right? Magic. Yeah. And when you talk about the early days of film, which is more your territory, to be honest, you're talking about very simple special effects that could be achieved with the camera that were, in their truest sense, a magical illusion. Uh, and I just talked a little bit about that kind of spectral photography, which was used as as part of that whole movement of spiritualism. But you'll find that this use of cameras and photography and other tricks has evolved into what it is today, which is the modern computer-generated special effects that you find. Sure. I mean, to so much to the point that it actually was, in fact, a illusionist who was the one who started to play with these kind of things. The film cameras we talked about in our film episode was just a tool to them. Uh, in the film episodes, uh, was it Cinematron Prime? We talked about Georges Méliès, right? Yeah. The uh, a lot of this, it's interesting. How a lot of these cultural impacts come from France. Georges Méliès was a French magician, you know, and he ended up being the, one of the first major filmmakers. And yet, his whole premise was he was just trying to use the the, the camera in, in, in a different way yeah. as a means of really showing a different type of illusion, right? And uh, the simple example is, you know, the old bewitched. You know, uh, you know, she twitches her nose, and all of a sudden something appears. Super easy effect to film. You film it, you say cut, the actor freezes, you put the object in their hand if they're trying to conjure up, and you say action, and you put in a sound effect in post, and voila, you've made something appear out of thin air. Pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, really, it, it, think about how many people sit in a movie theater uh, in this day and age, or since movie theaters existed, really, and have just been captivated by what they've seen in front of them and sure. blown away by these amazing realities that are created for them on screen uh, to the point now where things that are very, very simple, like we went to go see the Wolverine, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember you sitting there for a minute going, that is the best computer generated bear I have ever seen. And it's gotten to the point where we're going to be able to legitimately be tricked. And many of us have how think of how many movies where the, the, the special effects were so good that we completely missed it. And we yeah. absolutely thought it was real. And it's something as simple as like a bear. 
Yeah. Or, you know, an age makeup that was done or something like sure. that, where we completely missed that transformation because it was so yeah. well done. Well, special effects, I mean, can be also very minor, too. Mats are a good example of that. Matt, M-A-T-T-E. No, a mat is just a painted background that's meant to look real, you know? In some of the early films, like The Wizard of Oz, for example, when they're getting marching toward the Emerald City, there's a certain point where you can see where the sound stage ends and it's matte on, on film. Yeah. There's some ones where it's not that easy to, to pick out. Digital matting is just inserting a normal background in place of a real one. Star Wars. The last two Star Wars movies were done almost entirely with digital mats, you know, in front of green screens. And you just kind of accept at some point that it's just it's what you're really seeing. But the films that blend it are the more challenging it too, because you don't know where the real ends and the, the fantasy begins. And I find personally, being a student of the of the arts, that when you can mix practical effects with digital effects, the sum is greater than, than both their parts. Look at The Matrix, the first Matrix movie. Those special effects still hold up. They are unbelievably oh, yeah. good, right? They were a good example of combination of practical and digital effects, you know? Well, I have to say, this has been a really interesting episode. It's funny how it evolved and how it changed. And I would just like to remind our listeners that magic today, it still exists. In whatever form you believe it to be in, it still exists. Even in the sense of paranormal magic, there are still many people in the world who have very strong-held beliefs about magic. To the point where, in 2008, several men were brought to the point of hysteria when they believed that their penises had disappeared. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Brian gave me a very strange look just now. But in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in 2008, several suspected witch doctors were hung because they were believed to have performed magic that would cause the shrinking of other men's penises. Wow. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I feel it's probably just the excuse of these guys who will have small penises who, for some reason, want to blame it on somebody and found a, a poor shaman or, or witch doctor and, and blamed it on them. But, I mean, it, it caused mass hysteria in a city of 8 million people. It's still there. It's still powerful. And then you have situations where many cultures today perform, you know, like the veneration of the dead. Uh, that is, in many cases, a form of magic uh, for many people to re- you know, leave food offerings in hopes that the, that food right, offering like El Dia de los Muertos, for example. Exactly. Or in China, where for thousands of years, the practice uh, was actually far more involving, where back, you know, in, in ancient times, you actually had a member of the family sit before an altar, believed to be possessed and taken by the soul of the deceased, and then commence the feast themselves uh, in order to sustain that person. So you you have examples of magic uh, that, that still go on today, even. Uh, and don't forget that. And of course, when it comes to magic as entertainment and as a theater art, uh, it is one of the most beloved in the world, uh, one that is destined to continue to evolve and change and become yeah. something more than it has been. And it's still a rewarding art field. I mean, it's hard, obviously, it's highly competitive, but if you can make a living at it, you tend to make a pretty handsome living at it, you know? You tend to be in very high demand, and you perform, usually for a lot of private parties, but you tend to be, you know, one of the most respected people in your in your art. Yeah. And you know, folks, we normally say don't take our word for it and go out and hear some resources for you. I've got a few for you to, to check out if you're in the area. One is if you're in Seattle, Washington, there is an amazing little magic shop. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but it's in Pike Place Market. And it's this old-timey 
magic shop where you can get all these cool tricks. And it's got tons of old posters from the Howard Thurston era, from all these old magicians. It's very nostalgic. It's very cool to go into. Tons of Houdini-like stuff in there as well. Check them out. Um, if you're in Hollywood, California, check out the Magic Castle, which is a nightclub, exclusive nightclub for magic. You probably have to know one of the members to get in, but it's one of the few places where there's not only a place to go see magic on a nightly basis, but to also learn magic. They actually have the Academy of Magic there, where you can sign up for basic classes if you're not a magician. And if you're a real magician, you can audition and become a member, and you can go to like private master lectures where experienced magicians teach you more advanced tricks. Kind of cool. Very cool. There's tons of books out on the internet, uh, even some videos now that I'm a little skeptical of videos because that's not really keeping the secrets of, alive, but tons of resources where you can go and learn magic on your own. And magic is still a very tightly kept world. The secrets of magic really are handed down magician to magician. And if you're buying a book, it's because you're, you're interested in, in learning the art form, you know? There is one more place I will mention, which is the Magic Circle in London. And it's got the largest library of magic in Europe. It was established in 1905. Um, and it's, it's a club. It's a club of magicians. They were male only until 1991. Look these places up. See if that piques your interest at all. And you know what? Learn a card trick. I guarantee you'll be the coolest person at that party. Still to this day. People are like, <laughs> why do you carry a deck of cards nearby? But uh, after that question is, is quelled, you know, you just, <laughs> you just impress the hell out of them with a cool trick, you know? And considering we have listeners who are from around the world, I'll send out a special request to you as well. Visit a museum. Send me a picture of a magic wand. I want to see a magical instrument used by an ancient civilization. I want to see it come from you. And if you do, we will feature you on our social media, on our website, and give you a shout-out on the podcast. And tell us what we missed. Because if we want to talk about this again, this is easily an episode we can do a part two on. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got stuff in my head right now that I've come up with that I've, I've yeah. already got ready for part two, whenever that comes I out. mean, we didn't even touch on Harry Potter. And my God, we, can do, we probably can do a whole episode on the historical <laughs> ramifications behind Harry Potter and where a lot of their their references are derived from so you know i would love to do one of those too that would be interesting we got like five episodes idea out of out of this episode one episode i know know. it's pretty cool well we have a habit of doing that uh yeah sure but if uh, you do want to contact us through social media you can do so at my private twitter account i'm at brian moriarty i am at the brickmon and of course we have our company twitter at nerdonomy uh, and if you feel uh, that you want to perform a little magic of your own and would like to uh, perform the, the magical donation of PayPal, please head over to our website and click on the Donate button where you can send us a little bit of money, which goes to making our podcast fantastic and awesome. All proceeds go towards Nerdonomy. Not padding our pockets, just making the company run better. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're and not of course, padding our pockets with this. <laughs> not at all. In fact, we've Unless lost you've got money doing this. a few coins behind my ear that you could pull out. <laughs> no. Yeah. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> Um, And more importantly, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do so through iTunes and through Stitcher Radio. Yep. Folks, we're getting close to our one-year anniversary. We'd really love it if you guys could go to iTunes and write us a quick review of either of our podcasts, Nerds on Film or Nerds on History. Yeah, we're trying to hit 100 reviews before our very first anniversary. So please go ahead and and do so. It takes just a few moments, even if you're just uh, clicking on the little stars and giving us five. You don't even have to put any comments or, you know. As many stars as you want, of course. I mean, I'm not going to tell you you have to do five. But I would hope that you enjoy the content enough that you could give us a favorable review on iTunes. It just helps us be seen more more people, which gets us more exposure, which brings you more nerdonomy. And if you choose to actually write the review and not just give us the star rating, we will read your review out on the podcast. So, Oh, yeah. We should do that. We haven't haven't been doing that, have we? Yeah. We will be doing that. Don't worry. Going forward. 
Excellent. All right. Sir, as always, it, it is, is an def- honor. Thank you very much. I'm glad the, we got to geek out about this. To be in the presence of a master magician. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> so, until we meet again, stay nerdy, and tune in next week, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. <laughs>